Morning, this is John Hulsman checking in for our weekly look at around the world in 20 minutes, trying to make sense of the beguiling new world that we find ourselves in. And today I thought I'd do a riff, just one of our jazz improvisations, where I know where I begin and I know where I end, but I have absolutely no idea what happens in the middle, and those are often the most fun for me. So let's uh, let's take a trip together for the next 20 minutes, and let's look at the monsters lying beneath the waves and political risk today. Let's take two major news stories that dominate foreign policy headlines, and let's do a deep dive at what's going on beneath the waves, uh, because often... I think it's so easy to be caught up in the 24-hour news cycle and respond fruit fly-like to it and not look at some of the processes driving things. And at its best, history informing political risk gives us this deep dive context. And so I thought we'd try to do that today. And let's look at what's going on with Ukraine, China, and U.S. politics and see if we could look at some deeper points going on at the moment. Well, to start with in Ukraine, one of the ways to look at what's going on in the war rather than counting tanks or looking at who's up or who's down on the battlefield today, when in reality it's reached an attritional stalemate, and rather than count which small town has fallen to which side in the Donbass today, we should take a step back and look at what's going on. We've talked before about how Russia and Putin in particular is merely following through on a very old czarist playbook which is the basic idea that three times in the last hundred year in the last 300 years Russia has been saved from western invasion by a very simple and brutal playbook the russians occupy countries that are heading on toward the west in other words countries to their west they do so in a brutal way that doesn't make these countries in eastern europe very happy but they use these satellites as a way to stop invasions charles the 12th in the 18th century Napoleon in the 19th and Hitler in the 20th century. And so as these Western armies come on, whether it be from Sweden, France, or Germany, somebody in the West is coming on to try to attack them. The Russians trade land for time and let the long logistics lines, particularly Napoleon's time with the horses and bringing fodder up for them, when they couldn't, the horses started dying. When the horses started dying, the army couldn't move. And when the army couldn't move, it started dying. That this approach to leave these long logistics lines and let winter take its course, the severe Russian winter, three times stopped invaders, Charles XII, Napoleon, and Hitler, from taking over Russia. So this is not a crazy idea. This does not make, as people with no historical knowledge at all say, Putin is Hitler. Rather, he's rather a rather brutal Russian czar trying to retake control of his territory from what he fears is Western encroachment. Now, why would Putin fear Western encroachment? Well, two reasons. One, because historically, as we've said, this has been the pattern. Every hundred years or so, somebody from the West tries to eradicate Russia. And this is, of course, true. And the second reason is that Russia now is in a position of weakness. And this is the monster lying beneath the waves. That this attack on Ukraine is not a sign of Putin's strength, or that Putin thinks he's Hitler and can take over NATO or Europe or anything like that. Rather, it's the opposite. It's a sign of absolute weakness. In the old Cold War structure, the Russians were obviously one of two superpowers along with the United States. Now, at best, in our new era, the United States and China are by far away the two dominant superpowers. Beneath them, there are a series of great powers, 
India, Japan, the UK Anglosphere countries, um, as well as um, the UK, Japan, India, the EU, and Russia are the five countries beneath. And in this case, these five have a great deal of room to run with a football. But of the five, easily the weakest is Russia. The EU has a massive internal market. India is the country on the rise due to its economy opening up, due to its incredibly favorable demography. Japan has rediscovered its mojo under the late lamented Shinzo Abe and is now doubling defense spending. The EU, as I said, has this market. The UK Anglosphere, for all its problems, has first-rate intelligence, a first-rate military, and in London, uh, the financial capital of the world. So the EU, the UK Anglosphere, India, and China all have things to recommend them as great powers that are here for the staying. Russia does not. If you look at Russia, what do you see? You see demography that beggars description because Russian men have a terrible time with alcohol. You see demography destroying them, a vast amount of territory to defend. How in the world do the Russians defend Siberia from the Chinese? The answer is at the sufferance of the Chinese who've already economically interpenetrated that. The Russians are humiliated because they're no longer at the superpower table. And in fact, they're ignored when their concerns about NATO and other things over the last 20 years have been raised. And I can tell you that that certainly was the case. Their concerns were simply ignored and not thought about, as Wilsonians thought about Europe free from Vladivostok to Ireland, as particularly fevered Messianic Wilsonians talked about when I was in D.C., you have Russia that's a one-crop economy. It's never managed to diversify away from the energy market. I can tell you the power of Russia on any given day by the spot price of oil and natural gas. It's a country that's corruption stories are legendary. It's run in, in a czarist way, a feudal way, by a bunch of oligarchs who don't add any value, at least the robber barons in the United States. Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos. They form companies that have actually added value and employed an awful lot of people at an upper middle class level. All these new industries were created by these people. Russian oligarchs don't create anything. They just, like an old-fashioned duke, suck the tax revenue out of various industries or areas. And so this is a feudal, pre-capitalistic, corrupt society falling ever further behind, even China, which had been robbed to their Batman in the first Cold War, now China's dominant and Russia finds itself after the Ukraine war in the hip pocket of the Chinese, which is a cold and dark place to be on a good day. So for all these reasons, you see Russia fading. Yes, it's still a great power, but it's the weakest of the great powers. And what Ukraine is, is an attempt to stop the bleeding, to shore up Russia's great power territory by putting a series of satellite countries around it. So at least Russia maintains its sphere of influence in the Caucasus, in Belarus, in Ukraine as a buffer, but also that it maintains its dignity as a great power. I'm not saying that this makes it okay at all. Obviously, and I have to say this because we live in such crazy times, I would prefer the Ukrainians to win the war. But one has to understand Russian motivations if one are going to combat what Russia is about. This is not a sign of Russia's strength, the war in Ukraine. Rather, for all the reasons I've laid out, the monster lying beneath the waves in Russia is that the Ukraine war is a sign of its weakness. 
The second monster we should look at, and I, I love going, I, of course, grew up in Scotland and went to St. Andrews University and spent many happy hours in Loch Ness looking for the ever-elusive monster. The second Loch Ness monster lying beneath the waves that we're looking for with the Sino-American Cold War is, again, that the Cold War is a sign of China's weakness. And this doesn't mean that China's not dangerous. Rather, it means it's more dangerous. But for a too long, people have assumed that our enemies are somehow omnipotent when the 20th century is littered with authoritarians, the Kaiser, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, who thought the weak, decadent West would easily be gotten rid of and that there'd be absolutely no problem in doing so. And the graveyard is littered with them as we bumble on. And obviously, there's tremendous strength and durability in a democratic system. We may wash our dirty linen in public, but at least some of it gets clean. Whereas, as we've seen over zero COVID and other such things, Xi makes his mistakes privately, but they are no less egregious for it. And let's have a look at China. China has been considered for too long an effortlessly rising power. Again, my the always wrong Ian Bremer in Eurasia have said things along the lines earlier on, and please do look it up, that China had already somehow won the Cold War we were in. And this is, of course, absolute nonsense. This is what happens when you don't look at history. Rather, history would have us believe the monster lying beneath the waves is China is a peaking power, as I've said in the past and as people like Hal Brands and Michael Beckwin have said. And this makes it very dangerous because other peaking powers in history include the Kaiser's Germany and Imperial Japan. The Kaiser's Germany was worrying about a ever-rising Russia, which after the Stalipin reforms in the early 20th century, was from a very low base relatively catching up to Germany economically. And this is similar to the path India is taking. It's roughly analogous to India now rising relatively as China is the power that is on the, on the rise, and now India is supplanting it. So the Kaiser's military said to him, look, we only have a slight window to use our excellent military. Are we going to lose the advantage of doing so? And the catastrophic effects of World War I were the consequence. It's not that Germany was effortlessly rising. It's that its rise was being threatened by a power rising in an even greater trajectory, while Germany had not caught up at the same time to the dominant power of the day, in his case, Great Britain, in our case now, the United States. And this is the position China finds itself in, which makes it dangerous. Why have the Chinese not caught up to the United States? Well, a couple reasons. One, uh, Xi, unlike Deng, really is a statist. He really is a Maoist. And as he continues to cross-subsidize state-owned enterprises, which are the weakest link in China's economy, taking money and effort and focus away from the private sector, which is actually booming, to prop up zombie corporations that are far less efficient, Chinese growth has predictably slowed down. Second, demography is the great killer of China. As I've said many times before, China's going to get old before it gets rich. Even their laughably doctored numbers show that the rate of replacement in China is slightly over 1.4, and we know that number is a lie. It's much lower when the rate of replacement to get to even is 2.1. So China's going to get old before it gets rich. And who's going to pay for all these elderly Chinese when China does not have the safety net of, say, a Europe to tide it over? And so it's getting older all the time. It has fewer workers all the time. It has more retired people all the time. And because of the ruinous one-child policy, where the Chinese authoritarians try to insert themselves into the sexual mores of the average Chinese person, 
Only in a totalitarian state would think that they control matters of the heart and procreation. Everybody else knows better. And because of this, we have a gigantic problem. And China's problem is that it's going to get old before it gets rich. It's very hard to change demography. The one-child policy, which was in uh, force for two generations, has now been out for a number of years. But at the same time, Chinese women say, maybe I don't want to have five children anymore. I like having economic independence. I like having a good job. One child's enough, thank you. And the numbers show it. They cannot make people have children. And as a result, China has a terrible demographic problem. So an economy that is flattening, you have demography numbers that, 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 that really bear, almost don't bear description. And now China, Xi Jinping has scared the horses. He's thrown all the neighbors into the arms of the United States by bullying the Indians, by fighting in the high Himalaya over the line of actual control. India is now closer to America than it's ever been by bullying the rest of the region in the Indo-Pacific over the South China Sea. The Philippines are back on site after, after the Duterte hiccup. ASEAN is back on site because of this bullying, because of starting a trade war with Australia for, for having them have the temerity to question China's attitude to COVID when they let the rest of the world get sick when they realized that they had a cold. In other words, they kept open international travel even as they locked down Wuhan. And that is for sure, as Jack McCoy would say in Law and Order, this is manslaughter. This is depraved indifference. They didn't create this monster virus. But once the virus was loose, probably from the lab, they let it go on and on and on. This is manslaughter. Everybody knows it. The Australians had the nerve to raise it. And the Chinese, hysterically, not exactly proving their innocence, started a trade war with Australia. The constant overflights and bullying of Taiwan, the bullying of the Japanese over the East China Sea, has led Japan to now agree to double its defense spending in merely five years. The third largest economy in the world, one of the least reported stories out there, the third largest economy in the world is now doubling or is doubling its defense spending from one to two percent of GDP in merely five years. This is a huge story. It only makes sense if you see Xi's bullying. He's destroying the Uyghurs in Western China. He's at the same time crushed the democracy movement in Hong Kong, making the Taiwanese aware that the idea of one country, two systems is a joke. For all these reasons, the entire region is in the arms of the United States. So Xi sees a flatlining economy, terrible demography, and a region that is now turned against him because of his own mistakes. And so this is certainly not a rising power. The monster is that China is a flatlining power, is a peaking power. But as is true, as I said, for the Kaiser or, say, Imperial Japan, which in the 1920s grew at 6.1%, but in the 1930s only 1.6%. And then when there was an oil embargo, had to either go after the United States or back off in China, thereby getting rid of its military-dominated government, and it chose to leap into the abyss. And what an abyss it was. This makes China very, very dangerous in the near term if we don't anchor in the region, which is the key. We've got to increase deterrence, increase involvement in the Quad, work with all our neighbors there so the Chinese hesitate and hesitate again over invading Taiwan. But the monster lying beneath the waves in the Indo-Pacific isn't that China's effortlessly rising to global dominance, which was the song and verse of many of my rivals for a time. Instead, it's that it's a peaking power. It's not rising, and that's what's making it dangerous. The third monster to look at is the monster in American politics. And it's easy to look at this as a sign of the Democrats are the expert-driven technocratic class 
which is certainly the case, and the Republicans are a bunch of populist rubes, which is the story you read every day in European papers who don't know anything about what they're talking about. Rather, I'd like to look at this as a clash over the notion of experts. Since Woodrow Wilson got his poison tentacles into the Democratic Party, Democrats have had short shrift with rule of the people and have instead opted, and remember Wilson was a university professor and among the most arrogant men ever to live in an arrogant time, Wilson believed in expertise, in people with credentials. And the Democratic Party over the last hundred years has adopted this to a dangerous extent, that they believe in you if you have a title after your name. If you have a PhD, you're somehow correct. David Halberstam tracked this out earlier in his great angry left-wing book, which I love, one of my favorite foreign policy books, and I commend you all to read it, The Best and the Brightest. And he was making fun of this dangerous notion that the Kennedy people, McGeorge Bundy from Harvard, Robert McNamara from Ford Motor Company, that this highly credentialed, expert-driven class led the United States over a cliff in Vietnam. That just because you have to expertise doesn't mean you're necessarily right and that we should do what Jefferson would advise us and actually look at people's track records and then decide if they're worth listening to. Well, Democrats have given this up. And I mean, the prime example in modern day is Anthony Fauci, who's gone so far to say without any hint of self-reflection or irony that I am the science. And if you criticize him, somehow you're criticizing science himself itself. And the odd thing about that is Fauci's held almost every position, if you bother, again, holding him to account in a Democratic, Republican, Jeffersonian manner. He was for masks and against them. He was for every form of lockdown and against it. And he even went so far, and again, I give him honesty for his arrogance, like a Jacobin, he is a honest in his fanaticism. He said, well, we're going to have to think about civil liberties going ahead and curtailing them because they don't fit with dealing with health issues. He would rather have an expert-driven health dictatorship than deal with the Bill of Rights. And he has the insanity to, or the candor, depending or both, depending on how you look at it, to actually say this. The problem is not that America has an elite Every country does. It's that our, and all elites are self-regarding. All elites think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. All elites think that they deserve to have all the things given to them. The difference is some elites actually perform a good and some do not. Let's look at the track record of the greatest generation, as it's called. It got us through the Depression under FDR and Truman and Eisenhower and into Kennedy. It led to the biggest post-war economic boom in history, and it won World War II, defeating Imperial Japan and Nazism. And so this is, a, this is an elite that, although it was self-regarding, actually did an awful lot of good for the world. And if Eisenhower made a mistake, we'd cut him some slack. The problem with the last 20 years is that we have an elite, and this is what Republicans have pointed out and populists such as Trump have pointed out, we have an elite that has an absolutely terrible record. Let's just have a look. They were wrong about Iraq, and they were wrong about Afghanistan, both the neoconservatives on the right and the nation-building Wilsonians on the left who form most of the foreign policy elite who remembers the Council on Foreign Relations where I'm a member, which is the ultimate establishment club. It's like being a made man in mafia terms. And yet they were wrong about Iraq. They were wrong about Afghanistan. By wrong, I mean 90% of the people plus were wrong. They were wrong about the rise of Trump, never thought he'd beat Hillary Clinton. They were wrong about the financial crisis in 2008, totally missed this coming. 
And their only answer then is to throw money at it and not arrest any bankers, which made most people very angry. Most Americans didn't follow the ins and outs of the 2008 crisis, but they did know that our elite had failed them and that nobody went to jail. The Obama administration, always running away from any form of conflict, refused to put people in jail for totally gutting the world economy. Most people know that, and most people are angry about that. So for all these reasons, they got Iraq wrong, they got Afghanistan wrong, they got the financial crisis wrong, they got the rise of Trump wrong, they got the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right idea, wrong way to be executed wrong. And they wonder why the rest of us, and they got COVID wrong. We see now that countries that didn't have strict enforcement of masks, like Sweden, have roughly the same death rate as the rest of us, just like states that didn't rigor rigorously enforce mask mandates, like DeSantis's Florida, have roughly the same death rate in the middle of the country that is perfectly acceptable given the crisis we went through. But what these areas have is economic growth. They didn't gut their economy along with the mask mandates. So COVID, where there are these mandates that we now know the masks did very little, that this was dinner theater for grandma to make her feel better, but didn't accomplish very much, that the vaccines didn't stop people getting COVID, as we were told at the time by the science, by Dr. Fauci, that they got this absolutely wrong, that they were wrong, and that they're never troubled by the fact that their call record is abysmal, just like many of my compatriots who actually make money in my field aren't upset that they're wrong or even question the fact that they're making money being wrong about Iraq, Afghanistan, Trump, Brexit at all. And I think we should go back to the good old fashioned radical notion that we judge people by how good they are at their analysis. These folks in our elite have been wrong about almost every major thing. And they wonder why populists have the temerity to question them. And they wonder why they keep losing elections. And they wonder why people hate what they're saying, be it wokeism, be it COVID, be it anything where they think they know better and they can constrain my personal liberty. As a good Jeffersonian, I don't want anyone to constrain my personal liberty unless it's absolutely necessary for the good of society. And you better prove that to me and you darn well better have a good track record in doing so or I'm unlikely to give you the benefit of the doubt. The problem in America and the reason for the rise of populism in the West, in Europe, uh, the UK and the US is that our elites have been awful, that the, that the narrative of the populace is correct, that our elites have failed us and they're so arrogant they don't even know that, that they have no solutions to problems that have been festering for the past 20 years, income inequality, the hollowing out of the middle class, the giving up of manufacturing in the United States and no one caring, the rise in crime because of wokeism, the total neglect of the border, the rise of the fentanyl crisis, which has killed 70,000 people in the last year. I bet you've never heard about that in detail because our mainstream media don't care because these people come from the middle of America and probably don't vote like the mainstream media. So 70,000 people die in an opioid crisis and literally no one knows about that. All these problems are festered. None of them have been solved and yet an elite demand trust us. And populists scream back, I'm not going to. The tragedy is not that the populist critique of elites is wrong. It's right. The monster lying beneath the wave is the populists are right in their critique of the elite. The tragedy is that so far they don't have any policy solutions to the problems either. They're right to critique the old order for being out of touch and wrong about literally everything. But they're wrong 
very wrong and that so far they have no obvious solutions to some of these major problems. Building up a wall will not solve American immigration problems. Having a point system like Australia will, where we take in immigrants which we need so we don't have demographic problems, but we take in the immigrants that we actually want. Nurses, doctors, small businessmen who are going to add value to the United States and not take from the United States. There's an example. We aren't dealing with Mexico in a forthright way over that open border where fentanyl is coming across the border. By the way, a lot of it manufactured in China. This should be addressed as a priority. Anything that kills 70,000 people ought to be a priority. We can use the populist critique as a jumping off point. They're right about their critique of the elite. But now we must go to that next step and come up with populist policies that actually work. So the monster lying beneath the waves is that we have an elite desperately in need of correction while they self-regardingly don't realize that and say, I am the science. When science is about trial and error, and Fauci's had more error than success, so it's past time that, he's re that he retires, if not is indicted for some of the things that he's done. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy that. I really enjoy talking in a deep dive way about this, just off the cuff today with our jazz riff of the monsters lying beneath the waves in political risk today, Ukraine, China, U.S. politics. Hope you enjoyed this. Please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we're very grateful. And those of you who have, please do give. We're asking only $70 a month. We need you to do this because, frankly, we're swamped with work. We want to continue doing this as often as we can. But the only way I can justify that to the rest of my firm is if we have the money to make me able to sit around, have a cappuccino with you, and talk to our community as I love doing. So please do give so we can keep giving you these very different deep dives that explain the world we actually live in. Thanks a lot and have a great weekend.